Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. Okay. Good to see you, Reg. <clears throat> Get the microphone set here. We all set to go? Yeah, levels are in a good spot. You in a good mood? I am. <laughs> all right. What do you say we do this thing? I'll give you the three. Uh, I'll give you the countdown. I'll give you the three S's, and uh, you give me the music, and then uh, we'll be set to go. All right? Put it in the books. 358. <clears throat> Let's try to... See what we can do with that music intro again. Try to get it as tight as we can. I know it's it's I know it's not easy. We almost did it last time. <laughs> I like I said I'll I'm trying to if you can hear me I'm I'm trying to extend that uh, until I hear it. But there comes a point where I just have to say the line if the music's not there. Whatever. Once again, nobody hears this little chat between you and I. This is all just behind the scenes stuff, so that's no problem. But. Uh, you just know I, I like a tight board, as they say. So I don't even know if anybody notices that little space between when I say something and the music starts, the post, if you will. But, uh, you know, a radio guy, you, you, there's these little weird things that we get obsessed on. So you understand. You're a radio guy behind the scenes, but you're still a radio guy. Yeah. So, okay, ready? Star, smile, strong. Here we go. Ready? Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Podcast. <laughs> See, that's what I'm saying. Now that time it clicked on. All right, let's try it again. <laughs> Three, two, one. Hey, it's Jim Toronto. No, it's Elton Jim. <laughs> Here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Podtastic. And welcome to another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. We are there. Don't forget, though, just listening. Anyone can do that. I put you guys to work. Get out there. Spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell anybody that listens to a podcast that you know that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be their favorite podcast, too. What the heck is wrong with them? If you get out there and do that, I, I, I promise you the, the, the feeling that will swell in your body, it will make your day. Also, if you like what you hear, don't forget, go to WGNRadio.com. Hit the prompt for the podcast section. Go into the prompt for this podcast specifically. And my God. The storage unit filled with previous podcasts to binge on for hours and hours and hours. Just keep scrolling and scrolling, scrolling down. Listen to one. Scroll down. Listen to one. Scroll. Just keep scrolling till you can't scroll no more. I've done about 357 episodes of this podcast, so let's do 358. So I wanted to uh, talk about a couple of things today. The first thing I wanted to uh, give you is a little update, some really good news, exciting news. Over the past year or so, on a couple of occasions on the podcast, I always say, what do I always say? What is my little advice to you listen to the past podcast so you know what we're talking about in the future stay up to date stay up to date all i ask for is an hour a week that's not that bad but if you're a new listener to the podcast by all means uh, go into the uh, the prompt on wgn uh, radio.com as i say there and uh, hit some of the previous podcasts to see what we've been talking about over the last several years i don't know if it i, I think there's only so much storage so all 357 aren't there, but a good a good uh, two or three years worth are there. 
certainly enough to get you updated to some extent. But over the last year or so, I've been uh, talking about a play I did uh, last summer in 2022 called the uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf classic film by our play also became a film but started out as a play by Edward Albee one of America's greatest playwrights and uh, did it here in Chicago at a theater called the Invictus Theater and we had a very successful run some fantastic complimentary reviews uh, in the media much appreciated I was shocked and humbled by the response that those who saw the show had afterward. And uh, almost a year later, I continue to be shocked and awed at the response that the show has still gotten and the compliments still almost a year later. We, we, we started last, you know, we, we, we went up uh, when the show opened in May. So it's almost a year ago. And people that saw it, and people that I talk to uh, still mention it uh, as if they saw it yesterday. So it really made an impact on those who saw it. So much so, uh, much to my excitement, that uh, our play was nominated for seven Jeff Awards, Joseph Jefferson Awards here in the Chicago area. That is the highest award in Chicago theater. It's very similar. It's, it, it's, it's the same. You know, It's equivalent to a Tony Award on Broadway the highest Broadway honor. And so certainly it's a big deal to get nominated. And our show got seven nominations overall, um, two of which I was included individually as, as a nominee, one for best performer in a play, myself, and then also as part of our ensemble. Uh, and we were also, uh, our director was nominated, Another two other of my castmates were nominated, Andrea Upling and um, and Rachel Livingston and our set designer and obviously for the best play. And I'm very proud, just an update, because I have spoken about this play over the, the past year or so, so I just wanted to give you an update. Uh, the award ceremony was on March 27th, and out of the seven nominations, we won four, which was one of the biggest winners of the night, so that was exciting. And although I didn't win in my individual categories, which certainly is a little disappointing, but uh, ultimately we won the most coveted award of the evening, the last award of the night, best play. So we won the best play in Chicago non-equity theater for 2021 and 2022. Uh, And since there was only four of us in that play, I certainly feel that uh, my contribution must have had something to do with that uh, <laughs> with that award. So, um, just uh, it was a great theatrical experience, one of the best in my career, if not the best in my acting career. Very proud of the show, proud of my performance. Uh, a lot of people came up to me uh, at the event who had seen the show and remained, as I said. Very complimentary, not only of the show, but of my performance. So a very rewarding and fulfilling experience. And to win this high honor of best play uh, was just uh, a cherry on the Sunday. So it's a nice way. Got a nice uh, write-up in both of the Chicago newspapers, including a nice photo. Because our play won so many awards and won best play. So there was a photo of me and my co-star, Andrea Upling in the Chicago Sun-Times from the next day on March 28th. So that was very cool. So uh, just wanted to give you an update. Uh, I told you then how excited uh, I was about this about a year ago. I gave you an update about my nominations a few months ago. And so I just thought I would put the, tie the bow on the, on the little gift and, uh, and let you know the ultimate outcome. For Jeff awards including uh the big daddy of them all best play so very excited and thank you to all who uh, attended and i'll be on stage again soon here in chicago starting in may again at the invictus theater in chicago uh in uh, the arthur miller tony award-winning play the crucible about the salem witch hunts which 
was also a subtle allegory when it was written in 1953 at the time for the similar witch hunts that were going on in the American government uh, for this manufactured fear of communists and communism. And many people were blacklisted, especially in the in the arts, uh, and they were forced or at least heavily uh, intimidated to name names of their friends and colleagues who might be communists in this overblown paranoia drive that America was going to be overcome by communism in the 50s. And many uh, talented uh, actors and actresses of the time were accused of being communists, and many of them were blacklisted and couldn't get a job for, for decades because of this this blacklist, because it was became such a, a big deal in the country. Everybody was afraid of communism, and Joseph, Joseph McCarthy was the senator that drummed up all this, uh, this, this frenzy and hysteria, very similar to the same kind of frenzy and hysteria, none of it based in truth, and a lot of it based on innuendo and on people naming names to save their own skin for, for selfish reasons. And so Miller artfully compared the witch hunts of, of 1692, 1692 in Salem, Massachusetts. Remember that, 1692. And here it was 1953, 260 years or so later, and here we were again with witch hunts. We really hadn't learned much, had we, in uh, more than 250 years. So it's a pressure cooker of a play. I'm playing Judge Danforth. Uh, it's a very juicy role. I'm the guy that hangs all the witches. I come in in the second half of the play and really uh, and really stir up some um, some legal and religious fervor and hang those witches high over the town. So looking forward to that in May. So just wanted to give you a little update on that. I've been fortunate in my life and career to have met many of my idols, especially pop culture kind of idols. And a lot of times those were my idols. I've had some 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 personal people in my personal life who I've I who have had great love and admiration for. But like anyone else, especially in today's celebrity driven world, a lot of times our first idols are you know, people in the culture, in the pop culture world, whether it's a sports person, whether it's an actor or an actress, you you see those people and they seem so much bigger than life that it's easy to admire them. And I've over the years I spoke to you about some of my longtime uh, idols, if you will, or people that I've had great admiration for or I've been a huge fan of, if you will, going back to when I was a little kid, uh, like Jackie Gleason, the actor from The Honeymooners, and uh, Tony Esposito, the uh, Hall of Fame goalie on the Chicago Blackhawks, and Ron Sano, the Hall of Fame third baseman from the Chicago Cubs, obviously, you know, my nickname is Elton John and Elton Jim, right? So Elton John, who I've been a fan of since I was nine years old. Um, I was always a big fan of Dick Butkus and the Chicago Bears. As you see, I was a little kid. Sports heroes certainly played a big role, but also entertainment related music, television. Uh, Bruce Springsteen, another one. Um, I've had several people and then as the years went on I, i've always had some other people that as my scope of life uh you know expanded so did i find other people uh that i admired quite a bit for their work uh, and i have been very fortunate to have met most of those people that i have just mentioned in fact I, 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 I don't think it's an exaggeration. I, when I was, I, I was nine years old when I started to, uh, to be a big fan of Elton John. I always, I always, I guess, start my official fandom going back to when I first bought one of Elton's records, right? That would be the first, you take that first step of, you know, it's one thing to listen to somebody on the radio, but when you, 
went that extra mile to actually go out and buy the record at least at least to show that you like this person more than just oh if i hear this song that's fine i want to hear that song more i want to hear it all the time and so the first elton john record i ever bought was a 45 single of crocodile rock in 1973 so i consider myself that was when i could i I sort of that's the first that's the beginning date at least i consider myself of being an elton fan so it's been uh, you know, we're going on 50 years <laughs> right now. In fact, this is probably right around now is when Crocodile Rock in 1973 was probably a big hit, if I believe. So I'm at the 50th anniversary right now. Wow. Holy smokes. But um, but I remember as a little kid, as as, as I continued to be a fan um, over the years, uh, as, as, as a young you know, I, I remember being about 11 or 12 and, you know, you start to think of, well, what do I want to be when I grow up? I mean, you know, it's kind of early for anybody to really think about that, but I did. And I was so obsessed with Elton that I was looking around in my small little world there in my bedroom on the Northwest side of Chicago and Elton John, and I talked to you, I talked about this in a few podcasts ago before about being so mystified by the Egyptian pyramids and maybe one as a little kid for, for much of my life. And, and, and as I look back on it now, I, I, and to figure out, well, why, why was that such a, why was I so taken and so obsessed with it? And aside from just the mystery of it all, which still confounds people, we still don't really know anything as much as we know about the pyramids we don't know anything about them really all of it is conjecture there's really very few uh concrete facts we we you know the 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 facts about the pyramids are many times told and written about with an exactness in their tone but in reality we really don't know there's a lot of educated guesses a lot of hypotheses about what they were how they were built why they were built what they are what they represent but we really don't have concrete evidence as to what they really are and how they really were made and even when they were made there's a lot of um a lot of disagreement about that some claim they were built thirteen thousand years as opposed to three or four thousand or five thousand years so there's always some, you know, questions that we um we have answer we don't have answered but um but I I and just in thinking about this especially after having recently visited the pyramids I think one of the reasons why they've always mystified me is because as a little kid the Egypt the 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 the, the, the Egypt the desert the look of the desert Egypt itself and then those those three um great pyramids of Giza, it just looked so far away, so foreign, so unreachable of a thing to, to, to imagine being at where, when, from where I lived in this, you know, this middle-class neighborhood in a bungalow in Chicago, just seeing the, the mystifying and, and, uh, and almost magical images of those pyramids in a desert somewhere Uh, it just seemed exotic it seemed far away it seemed unreachable and so maybe it was this kind of subble goal that i i implanted in my mind and the same thing too when i was uh a a little kid a young kid and and being this you know just crazed frenzied fan of elton john's especially and here i am you know 50 years later right uh, so I've seen 211 concerts of his, so it really—it's ha- only—it's only grown. It hasn't—it hasn't diminished in 50 years. But uh, the idea of—you know—I saw you know back then, especially rock music at that time. It's hard for people to understand it, but it really, you know, popular music and and, and rock music at that time wasn't as accessible as it is today. It was still, especially in 1973 and 74, it was still kind of viewed as a fad. It was popular, no question about it, but it was still viewed as young people's music, and it wasn't the accepted music of the day. So there wasn't a lot, uh, you know, there's radio stations certainly played it, but 
you know, on television, rock music still was kind of viewed as a, 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 a niche, a fringe. So you didn't see rock music on TV very much, except if you, like once a week if you watched Bandstand. Or once a week at 10 30 at night, you'd watch In Concert or, or uh, Midnight Special. But aside from that, rock was still kind of relegated to uh, a niche in the entertainment world at that point in the mid to early 70s. And so for the most part, it lived on for in magazines like Rolling Stone and and Cream and Rock Scene and Crawdaddy. There were these these rock magazines. And then there was the, the little teeny bopper magazines too that always would have some rock stars, but those were mostly the cutesy ones like David Cassidy or uh you know, Donny Osmond, like Sixteen magazine or Tiger Beat. I didn't really read those. I wasn't out to win a dream date with Donnie, you know. <laughs> but um, uh, so for most part, Elton, for me, lived in the music, listening to their albums and, you know, whatever pictures were, were on the album covers and then in these magazines, reading about him and seeing pictures. That's how he existed to me for the most part. Every so often he might be on TV or there might be a a video of him somewhere, but that was far and few between, at least in the United States, because he lived in England. He was on English television much more than he was here in, in the United States. And so uh, I remember as a, as a young kid saying, well, how could I ever meet Elton John? That be sort of became kind of a mini obsession uh, with me as a little kid. How can I ever meet him? Well, in my world, the only the only the the people that really you know aside from being a rock star and being in the music business, the the the, the one per, the one area that seemed to the, where where people were with or met Elton John were in the media. The people writing these stories, I'd read these stories in these magazines and these people were sitting down and talking to Elton John or even on television or the news. You'd see them, you know, interviewing them with a microphone. And so I'm like, that's how I can meet Elton John someday. I will, I'll become a reporter and I will meet Elton John someday. That's how I'm going to do it. I'm not going to be a rock star. So how am I going to get into that little world? That's how I'll get into that world. I'll get into the media. And so from a young age... I was already interested in pop culture and television and music and movies and things like that. And so uh, the idea of, of being a member of the media, I had a great knowledge of it. And so that's why I worked on my writing skills and worked on my, my, my public speaking skills. For, as a young kid, I got up in front of people uh, and, and so I can get away from the, the, the stage fright. And uh, and I enjoyed writing, and so I started to write stories and things like that. And ultimately, it was through my journalism career that I did meet Elton John. In fact, this year, 1993, will be the 30th anniversary of when I first met Elton. This month, in fact, in April of 1993, 30 years ago was the first time that I met Elton John, and it was because of my media career. Uh it, it, it took me a little longer than I had hoped, but it still happened. Uh, I, I was just, I, I wasn't 30 years old yet, but I was, you know, so, but it, but I, as a little kid, I sort of made that goal and, and I, and I started a media career then when I graduated college and ultimately that led to me meeting Elton John and I met, wound up meeting him personally four times, uh, but the first time was backstage in Boston at the old Boston Garden in 1993 in april so this month is the 30th anniversary of me being an elton john fan or, i mean meeting elton john so pretty cool and as i said i've been very fortunate because of my media career to have met or spoken with at least many of my childhood idols all the names that i mentioned to you before i've had a chance to meet them all I met Jackie Gleason when I was an intern at the CBS station here in Chicago, WBBM-TV. I was an intern during college at the Channel 2 News and met Jackie Gleason when he was in town filming his last film called Nothing in Common with Tom Hanks. Um, I met uh, Tony Esposito and actually became somewhat of a friend, if you will. I mean, not we never hung out, but... 
uh, I did meet him on several occasions, and um, you know he would he would he would address me by name, and we would hang out a little and talk. And um, I spoke to him on the phone a few times, and and uh, he, he even put me on his Christmas card list. And uh, in fact, this month uh, will be the anniversary of his birth. His birthday was uh, April twenty third. He sadly died almost two years ago now. Um, but I got a chance to know, to meet, and then actually come to know him, which was amazing. Um, uh, I met Bruce Springsteen uh, a, a few times. First time was in 1984, and then later I met him at, uh, at, a, at, at a few different events where I was as a member of the media at, a rock, at, at two different Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremonies. Got a chance to meet him. Uh uh, I met and you know and sort of made a little m- mini career impersonating John or, or uh, Ron Sano, <laughs> uh, one of my childhood idols from the Chicago Cubs. And in my in my bedroom, I had posters of Dick Butkus, uh, Ron Sano, Tony Esposito, and Bobby Hall. And I have met all four of those guys. Um. And so, and then I, I said, then pretty soon, after, then after that, I discovered Elton, and all those posters came down, and the, and the whole room was filled with Elton John posters, and I've met him. So I've been very lucky to meet some of those childhood idols, um, all of them. It's really kind of an, an odd and, and fortunate thing. Uh, but I sort of set out to do that in many ways. It wasn't, it wasn't by accident. It was kind of planned. You know, there was a plan in place there. And it and it really did work out, and it's those have been some of the most. And I've been very lucky in that uh, I've met many of my idols, and uh, and then other ones, you know, down through the years too. People that I've had great admiration for, and I've been very lucky in that for the most part, those meetings have all been nice uh, and memorable, uh, and uh, and very genial meetings. Sometimes. Uh, people meet their idols and they are very disappointed. The person's rushed with them, or they don't really care. They blow them off, or they they act arrogant. And um, and I've never had that. Uh, my 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 meetings have always been very nice, and the, the people have been very appreciative. And and um, and so all of the meetings with those people, I have so fond memories of Jackie Gleason and and Tony Esposito and Elton John and Bruce Springsteen and uh, I met Anthony Hopkins and and one of that once again once again I I interviewed a lot of these people too uh down through the years uh, Paul McCartney I've met and uh, and Ringo Starr and and so you know I love the Beatles sadly I never got a chance to um to meet John uh, and George, but I did have a chance to meet and interview twice Yoko Ono. And she even sent me a beautiful letter uh, thanking me for the, uh, an article that I wrote about John's art that came through Chicago. So I've, I've been very fortunate in that, in that regard. The reason I'm bringing this up is because I, a recent one of my childhood idols maybe not as intense as the ones i just said to you that that have remained uh you know kind of in my mind uh through the years like tony o and elton and and bruce and jackie gleason but uh but someone who i certainly have always had a soft spot for going back to when i was once again a little kid and i was very sad to hear that this uh this gentleman uh, and once again, a sports figure, as I said, as a little kid uh, at the beginning, very much into sports. And then I got into the whole kind of entertainment and arts thing. And that's kind of normal, I would say, for for little boys, especially back in those days. Now, this pop culture is so pervasive that, you know, in uh, sports is, is part of that. There's no question. Uh, but back in those days, you know, if you were a little boy, you know, you, you were into sports, you know, for the most part. At least I was. Um, but my mom also instilled a great love for me in the arts as a young kid. So that's why I said at the age of nine, I became an Elton John fan. But I was buying records when I was six or seven. I mean, I've got records that I bought, not that someone bought for me, that I went out and bought 
or that I wanted. I mean, I didn't buy them. I didn't have a job when I was eight or seven. But, you know, I mean, I was, these were records that I had asked my mom, could you, I want to buy this record, you know. So I was into it from an early age. And my mom was, and so I think that's where I got that from. Used to take me to plays and and movies and and things like that at a very young age. So I always credit her with, um, with instilling that love for the arts in, into me from a very uh, young age. But, um, but there was, there's another person I wouldn't have, I wouldn't put in that high plateau like Elton or Bruce or Jackie Gleason or Tony O or people like that. But certainly for about a couple of years, uh, at least one summer for sure, this guy was was really my favorite player. And he was a very uh, flamboyant, high kind of profile, and a solid player. Not a Hall of Famer, but certainly a, an excellent player. And uh, he was on the Cubs toward the end of his career. He made his, uh, his greatest fame as a member of the New York Yankees in the, uh, in the 60s. He didn't come to the Cubs really toward the last couple of years of his career, but he was still a well-known name, very popular because of his flamboyance, but he was also a really solid player. Uh, Golden Glove, first baseman, always a good hitter. He was on one of the Yankees World Series teams. So, in fact, the last one before they won in 1977, he was on the 62 team. So uh, he certainly was a good player, and in fact, he's even referenced a couple of times in some Seinfeld episodes. So clearly, uh, you know, he was a popular player. He might not. He wasn't at the level of Mickey Mantle or, you know, some of the great those the the, the amazing great players of the uh, of the Yankee era of the late fifties and sixties. Uh, you know, or like Joe DiMaggio. He wasn't in that class, and he played with Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford. Uh, so he wasn't in that class, but he certainly was a very good player. He was a starting player on the on those Yankee teams for many years. And his name was Joe Pepitone, and he just passed away recently at age fifty, at, at what age eighty-two. And as I said, he was uh, he was very flamboyant, kind of a free spirit. He came from a kind of a, a very rough background with uh, you know parents, and it was a very rough upbringing. And so I think that added to some of his edge and some of his rebellious attitude. He was no choir boy. He was no saint. He actually went to prison briefly after he retired. Um, but on the baseball field and in the sporting world, um, he was something of a of enigma because you know back then, once again, it's hard for people to understand when we see players today. You know, everybody in the world, not just you know sports figures or even entertainment people. But now we've got this whole little subcategory of influencers. So everybody in the world now, to some extent, has their own brand, right? So the whole idea is to bring attention to you. That's the kind of society we're in right now. But that is not the way it was at all 40, 50 years ago. You were branded a hot dog and an egomaniac. There's a great uh, documentary right now on Amazon about Reggie Jackson that uh, that that and they were saying he was one of the first hot dogs but I don't believe that he was one of the first hot dogs I think Joe Pepitone was one of the first hot dogs there was another guy named um uh, Willie Montanez who was very flamboyant in the way he would catch the ball but back then the 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 sporting world was very conservative and the players themselves were very conservative you didn't call attention to yourself you did that you were kind of showboating you were showing up your fellow teammates if you tried to show that you were better or more important or did something special if you made a if you made a catch even if it was a tremendous catch uh you know you you just threw the ball back in you didn't take a bow you didn't make it look like you just climb Mount Everest. There's, uh, there's, there's this uh, footage of, a, of an over-the-shoulder catch that Willie Mays made at one point in his career. He ran a mile toward the center field wall and catches the ball over his shoulder and then catches it and immediately takes the ball and throws it in you know, because there's a runner probably thought there was going to be a, a, you know, he's running. There's probably a man on base. And so... You know, he did the right thing to, to get a double play, 
because I'm sure that guy thought, "Whoa, this is way over his head. I'm gonna, I'm gonna run." And then he, when Willie uh, catches the ball, he's got to get back to that base. So Willie makes makes this amazing catch, but he doesn't he doesn't bask in the glory of it. He catches the ball and immediately turns around and throws it back, and then the play goes on. And you know he's not taking bows for that. The whole idea of of, of uh, bringing attention to yourself was not. Uh, you know, was not encouraged if you were in baseball. As I said, though, Joe Pepitone comes, and he's kind of a free spirit. And while that was beginning to change as the 60s went on and the youth culture began to more and more take over uh, instead of driving the culture, but Joe Pepitone was right in that middle area there. You know, don't forget, the Beatles don't happen until 64, and the, that the, the whole you know Woodstock doesn't happen until sixty nine. Uh, you know, uh, the whole hippie thing doesn't happen until sixty seven. So uh, that's when things started to, to to expand a little more, and people started to to have uh, their own individuality and and that whole idea of of uh, being bringing attention to yourself, the way people dress. Everything changed really after the Beatles. You can't even. It's 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 just. It's undeniable the impact that they had on things. But this is 62. But Pepitone had that edge and he had that flamboyance when it wasn't really cool. And so he wasn't initially he wasn't very popular with the players on his team. And he wasn't popular with the media because they they were in that same mindset. You know, they they looked at it like, oh, look at this showboat. You know, but what Joe Pepitone did and why he was able to get away with a little of his flamboyance, even during a very conservative time in sports, the reason he was getting away, uh, he got away with it was because he delivered on the field. If he was bad, he would have been drummed out in two seconds. But the players and the media had to put up with him because he was letting his bat and his glove talk. And because of his personality, which he displayed on the field by the way he carried himself, by the way he dressed, his hair was a little longer, and things like that, especially at that time, there was a big deal, long hair. I mean, what they considered long hair and what we consider long hair is two different things. In the 60s, I mean, when you look at the Beatles, when they arrived at, uh, you know, in the airport in New York in 1964, their hair was considered long. Go take a look at the pictures of the Beatles when they landed at Kennedy Airport. Well, it wasn't Kennedy Airport. Oh, maybe it was at 64. No, it wasn't. It was probably Idlewild. But when, the, when, they, when they landed at the airport, uh, that was not long hair. But back then it was because everybody had shaved heads, you know, real like crew cuts or real short hair. The Beatles cons- were considered long-haired hippies in 64. Who knew it was going to happen by 67 or 68? Then it was really long hair. So Pepitone was even ahead of the curve then. He was before the Beatles. But certainly then as things expanded, he grew his hair and and you know, he was he was known as a party guy after the games and there's a lot of stories about Joe Pepitone that not only others tell but he proudly told himself. And so he was a, a somewhat of a controversial figure. In fact, he was, he's also known as the first player, and this is, once again, uh, the, the era. And, he was, it, and it was frowned upon. These, the managers at the time were very old school. And Joe Pepitone, apparently, his claim to fame was also, he was the first player to bring a hairdryer into the locker room. You know, most guys didn't need a hairdryer because their hair was so short that they used a towel and, and, and dried it in two seconds. Because I said it was kind of like either crew cuts or bush cuts or, or, or real close or, you know, hair where your hair didn't even need to be combed. And if it did, as I said, you, 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 you used a, a towel on it a few times and your hair was dry. But Joe Pepitone had longer hair and he brought a hand hair dryer into the locker room. And apparently it's a story where he came into the locker room and asked the manager, where do I plug this in? And the, the, the old school manager, I'm not sure who he was at the time, looked at him like, what the hell are you even talking about, you freak? 
<laughs> but they couldn't say anything because the guy was delivering. He was a good baseball player. Wasn't a Hall of Famer, but he was a, 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 one of the best players of his era at that time. He didn't put up amazing numbers to get in the Hall of Fame, but he was a solid, you know, 280, 290, 300 hitter, you know, uh, RBIs, really a golden glover. He was a good, solid player for many years on the Yankees. And, uh, but they, so they put up with his personality because he was delivering on the field. Uh, I became aware of him when he was traded to the Cubs, I believe in 1970, and he was here for only about two years. Not a long time, because he was getting—he was older at that time. The, they, the Yankees traded him, and, uh, and he was toward the end of his career. But even when he was with the Cubs, toward the end of his career, he still be, quickly became a fan favorite. Was, Joe Pepitone was always a fan favorite because of his personality and because he was a— a dependable, consistent player, both at the plate, hitting, and with his glove. And then his flamboyance on the field, the way he looked, he wore jewelry, he had longer hair, uh, and then you hear these stories about him, you know, like Harry Carey, you know, the, the mayor of Rush Street kind of thing. So he was he was notorious as well. He was infamous as well as a good player. So that made him a fan favorite because he looked different. He acted different. He had a swagger about him. He had a little flamboyance about him, but he also backed it up. He got key hits. He was one of the best hitters on the team and a great fielder. And so uh, when he came to the Cubs, I was a little kid, totally into baseball, starting to play little league. And, uh, so I once again I just I I always have had a I always go for you know these kind of more flamboyant people Elton John Joe Pepitone you know Jackie Gleason big personality uh, those always seem to be the guys that uh, you know the people that I that I tuned in with and that and I've sort of emulated in my own way in my life in my many careers and um, so Joe Pepitone I was not a first baseman. I loved Ron Santa, but even Ron Santa was somewhat of a, a flamboyant guy. I mean, uh, and so was Bobby Hull, and so was Tony Esposito in their own way. Uh, Tony was more low keyed, but he was, but the way he played was flamboyant. He was this, he was he, the way this, these crazy wild saves he made, and he had the coolest mask. And you know, Bobby Hull was called the Golden Jet. You know, he had this this blonde hair that would blow in the breeze as he skated. And Ron Santo in the sixties, sixty nine, especially, uh, you know, was a popular player. Uh, his famous for for jumping and clicking his heels in '69 when the Cubs won. So all the players that I seemed, uh, and all the people that I seemed to gravitate to, all had this sense of of flamboyance about them in one way or the other. Obviously, Elton being probably the most flamboyant of them all, but they all had their own way of being flamboyant. And Joe Pepitone certainly fell into that category as well. And um, so I just remember it was probably the summer of '71. Uh, but I was playing Little League, and you know Joe Pepitone now in 1971. Now by then, you know certainly, you know long hair was was in. That was the fashion. You know you got your hair styled, but it was longer than you know. And he had his hair because he, he was balding. He actually wore a toupee, a couple of toupees, and apparently he had a, a he had a game toupee and a going out toupee. <laughs> So so did Ron Sano too toward the end of his life in, in his career, but um, but but his the big thing was because he was kind of bald on top, he grew his hair long in the back. So he had you know he had in the, he had those those classic Elvis seventies mutton chop sideburns, and then he had this long hair in the back that went past the collar which you never in baseball once again you never saw that baseball players were very conservative and, and he and he wore his his jersey with a couple of buttons open and gold chains this was out this was unheard of but he got away with it because he was a good player the players and the management had to put up with him to some extent cuz he was delivering on the field and when he's when and then after a couple of years you know uh he 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 his his um you know his talent started to decline. He was getting older now, 
and um, and then it was easy to it was easier to get rid of him, and they didn't have to put up with that stuff because his his numbers were starting to fall. And the Cubs traded him. He went to Japan for literally like a week to play baseball, and then he just retired in about 1973. But he was with the Cubs for about two or three years. But I would think it was like 71 or 72 where I grew my hair real long in the back all summer. I Once school got out, because in school I went to a, a Catholic grammar school, so we had to have our hair somewhat, uh, you know, we couldn't have it crazy. But in the summer, who cared, right? So once I, whenever I had my last haircut before school let out, I didn't cut it until I went back to school in September. So it grew the whole year. When I was putting my baseball hat on, you know, it all popped out in the back just like Joe Pepitone. So I had my Joe, I walked around with my Joe Pepitone tribute all that summer. Joe Pepitone, Joe Pepitone. I had, uh, I got his autograph on, you know, when I went to a Cub game, I had a button of his, the Joe Pepitone button when I went to the Cub game. Joe Pepitone, Joe Pepitone, at least for that one summer. And he was very popular on the Cubs for about a year and a half. No question about that. Good old number eight. In fact, my freshman year of baseball, I wore number eight. That was Joe Pepitone's number. So uh, I've always had a soft spot for Joe Pepitone, and but he was—he's mostly viewed as a member of the Yankees. He was only in the Cubs for a couple of years. They didn't win anything, so you know his 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 stint with the Cubs is certainly remembered by Cub fans here in that era in those two or three years. But for the most part, Joe Pepitone was considered a Yankee. And he's very popular in New York. And he would still go back there for old-timers games and, and things like that. And as I said, there's, there's two episodes where Joe Pepitone is referenced uh, in, in, a, in a Seinfeld episode, <coughs> including a, a really funny little line. Uh, Kramer is, um, is, is, is driving a handsome cab, you know, one of those cabs one of those coaches with the with the like they used to have here in downtown Chicago, they still have them in New York, where it's like a horse drawn carriage and you take a little ride through the city and they still have those throughout Central Park. And somehow Kramer got a hold of one. A guy in the building was going on vacation. He said, Hey Kramer, you wanna drive my handsome cab while I'm out? And so, you know, he of course said yes. He said yes to anything. And there's a shot, a scene of him driving some tourists through Central Park. And he doesn't know anything about Central Park, but he's all dressed up with the big kind of uh, Charles Dickens kind of hat on and everything as he's driving the people through. And he says, oh, well, this is Central Park. And uh, it was first developed in, um, you know, the 1800s to uh, practice for the Civil War. And it was designed by Joe Pepitone. And, you know, these tourists were from, they didn't speak English, so they just nodded. And it was always fun to hear a Joe Pepitone uh, reference because it was it was somewhat obscure, but you can tell it was most likely either Jerry or da- Larry David because they're both New Yorkers, so I'm sure they grew up being Joe Pepitone fans. So one of them had to have put the Joe Pepitone reference in there just because they were probably fans of Joe Pepitone. And it was such a crazy, by 1993, you had to be of a certain age to even remember who Joe Pepitone was. So that was one of the cool things about the Seinfeld show. They would they would throw some of those references in. Uh, and that was certainly one of the more obscure but really hip and cool ones. And there's a couple of occasions where, um, you know, Joe Pepitone is mentioned. Another time uh, Kramer goes to a, uh, a fantasy camp and he hits Joe Pepitone because he was hugging the plate. And that's where my story gets interesting. I never got to meet Joe Pepitone. I mean, I got his autograph, you know, at a Cub game, but it's two seconds, and you know, by the, by the, you know, side of the brick wall at a, you know, I mean, so I didn't really meet him, you know. I mean, I just was a little kid, and I, you know, put out my program, and he signed it. Uh, so flash forward now to my fortieth birthday, and to celebrate my fortieth birthday, you know, I, I played baseball for a good the first you know 15 16 years of of you know from a little kid into uh you know but a year in college or so after uh after i played in high school and uh so i played for a good you know 14 years or so probably and uh you know in different leagues 
traveling teams, the whole thing. He was a pretty good player. Uh, I was on the varsity when I was, I was a starting catcher on the varsity team in high school, so that's pretty cool. And, uh, and we won uh, a regional when I was a junior, so we had, I was always on pretty good teams. And, uh, but I hadn't played baseball then for many years, but I've always been a baseball fan, always been a Cub fan. And so for my 40th birthday, I said, you know, I'm going to go to this Cubs fantasy camp, which got started uh, by one of the Cubs who was another, I was another fan of his, you know, player uh, or fan of his for many years because he was a catcher on the Cubs, player named Randy Hundley. And uh, he started this uh, this Cubs fantasy camp, and a lot of other teams then started to do it as well. Where they they you know you would pay for a, you play you'd go to uh, you know wherever the your favorite team if whoever had one of these these teams this fantasy camp things players of uh, of, you know, of of a past team players from the past would come and the civilians the fans you would pay and you would play. You know, at the 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 team's like training facility for the Cubs, it was Mesa, Arizona, and all these these Cubs from the past, Hall of Famers as well as popular players, would come and they would play within the games, or they'd be your coach, and so it was just a very fun, nostalgic kind of week. If you were a big baseball fan of a certain team, you'd see many of these players that you grew up idolizing, and now you were for a week playing baseball with them and hanging out. And it was the, it was really cool. And I've always heard about this. And I said, you know, for my 40th birthday, I think I'd like to do that. Uh, you know, so this way I could still play. I was still, you know, I was still in playing shape to some extent. You know what I mean? I was still, not, I was, could still run and throw and everything. So I could enjoy it and play the games. Um, and I would be able to, to see some of my, my favorite players and just, you know, and they gave you a, a uniform and you, you played on the field, as I said, and you, you played at, you know, you, you, you played games at their training facility in Mesa. Then you played at that time. Now they have a new field, but at that time it was Ho-Ho Camp Park. Also in Mesa, you used the, uh, you used the locker room. You had, uniforms with your name on the back and uh you know like my coach was billy williams was a hall of fame cub player as well as ed lynch who at one time was a cubs on the cubs team and they also became their general manager but so many great uh cub players from the past were there especially from my era when i was a little kid growing up as well from the 70s and 80s so you know jody davis and lee smith another hall of famer and jose cardinal and carmen fan zone and glenn beckert and of course, Ron Sano, which was amazing. You know, it was just a thrill for me to 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 meet him, really for the first time. And 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 uh, Rick Russell, uh, all these these really some really great players who went on to to being good Cubs as well as going on to other teams and becoming major stars because they had good teams behind them. Finally, they were great players and good players, but the Cubs always had bad teams. And a lot of these guys went on to other teams and became you know, World Series champs and all-stars and or at least got into the playoffs. Like Rick Russell had a whole new career after he left the Cubs. Many Cubs did that. Uh, but a lot of Cubs from the, from the 84 World Series team and a lot of the famous uh, Cubs from the 69 team that almost won the, the, the first place and a lot of players uh, from the 70s who were popular. So it was right in my wheelhouse. And these guys were still, you know, they weren't, old they were older but they weren't too old so some of them were still able to play and throw and things like that well much to my excitement joe pepitone was going to be at this fantasy camp and he was perfect for it because you know a lot of this you know you played baseball but there was a lot of people with you know the, the baseball games weren't the, the greatest in terms of quality i mean a lot of these guys were fans of these players but a lot of them were not really good baseball players. It wasn't like these games were great, but everybody went there for the experience to be able to play on the field and wear the uniform and, and hang out. And so you had some player people like me that, that did have a sports background, but then other people looked like they never threw a ball in their lives or they, they never really were very good, but it didn't matter. They were diehard Cub fans, and so that's why they were there. And that was great. It didn't matter. You, I mean, you'd like to win the game, but 
it wasn't about that. It was about the camaraderie and hanging out, playing baseball with these guys, playing catch with them, talking with them, hanging out afterwards. And, you know, they they have dinners and go to bars. And, and as I said, what's so great about Joe Pepitone, uh, the, the, every day at the camp would start with the meeting where everybody would get dressed in their uniforms about 830 or so. You play two games a day. And Joe Pepitone and then and the players would get would be there too, and they would just start telling stories about their past. Uh, and so these great stories about you know their their playing days with guys in the room making fun of them. Joe Pepitone telling stories about Mickey Mantle and things like that when he played with the Yankees as well as the Cubs and Leo DeRocher and all the stuff that went on in the clubhouse, and it was just really funny. And a lot of them were very risque stories and filled with expletives. And Joe, and this was right. This is made for Joe Pepitone. He he held court. He was a performer, as I said before. He was very flamboyant, so he loved it. He was he had a big personality, and he told these stories with with great emotion and hilarity. And so he really you know held court and was like the the jester of the week. You know he would always be because he had some amazing stories when he playing with the Yankees and living in New York and stuff, and he played with and against some of the, the greatest players in the game, like Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and things like that. So he had a wealth of stories both on the field and off the field, and he, he really was the week's entertainment. And so it was so cool for me to be there with Joe Pepitone because I was an idol of his forever. I brought the pin that I had to show him, and, and you know I got his autograph on my bat and the whole thing and pictures. And, but, uh, but the funniest thing that happened to me just like Kramer, he tells a story how Joe Pepitone, he hit Joe Pepitone with the ball because he was hugging the plate. And he's like, you know, when I'm up there, you know, I own the inside of that plate. Well, Joe Pepitone was one of the coaches of the team. I, I was, my, my coach is Billy Williams. Well, we were playing a game against Joe Pepitone's team in the afternoon. And the, they had umpires, but they had umpires that stood behind the pitcher. Not where they usually stand behind the catcher because they didn't want these guys to get hurt and have to wear the equipment. So they stood behind the pitcher and called the balls and strikes from there. And you can come pretty close with that, but it's safer, you know. So for foul balls on the the right field line or the left field line, the catchers had to make the call because they were the only ones who would have the vantage point of being where the lines are on the right field line and the left field line. And so, you know, if there was a fly ball or, or, or a ground ball, you know, the catcher was supposed to call it fair or foul. So we were in extra innings now with Joe Pepitone's team, and it was getting dark, and they didn't turn the lights on or anything. So we were getting pretty close to having to call the game because we went into extra innings. And Joe Pepitone, once again, being who he was, I mean, he was the manager of the team, but he would sit at in the third base coach's little spot there, right by third base, coaching the team from a lawn chair. <laughs> you know, the other guys, the other coaches were in the, you know, by the dugout where you're supposed to be, but Joe Pepitone always wanted to bring attention to himself. He brought a lawn chair and sat in the third base coaching thing right next to third base. So he's on the field and he would be screaming during the game and making jokes and yelling at people. And once again, always an entertainer. And that's why I think I was always attracted to him and always found him interesting. Not only was he a good player, but he was just an interesting guy. And that's why he was so popular with fans. So um, we're in the, you know, we're in extra innings and, and, and uh, our team goes ahead in the top of the inning in the extra innings, and now Joe Pepitone's team is up, and uh, there's like a man on, and we're up by one run, and there's a man on third base, and the hardest call to make, even for an umpire in the game, who's 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 the third base umpire who's over the base, right next to the base and the line at third base, the hardest call to make is when a ball is hit right down the right field line or the, the left field line for third base or first base, the right field line. Because the way the rule is, if the ball flies over the base, it's a fair, even if it lands 
10 feet into foul territory if when it flew before it hit the ground. I mean, if the ball hits the ground in foul territory, it's a foul ball. But, you know, before the base, it's a foul ball. But if it goes into foul territory after it passes the base, if it flew over the base in fair territory, because a ball many times will curve when it's hit, if that ball flew through the air over the base in fair territory, and then when it finally hit the ground, if it hits in foul territory, it's still a fair ball. Now, that's an, um, that's a very hard call to make because this is all happening very fast. The ball gets down there in, in a second. And even it's a difficult call sometimes, third base umpires miss the call. And they're right on it. They show the replay. Oh, well, he missed that one because it might be right on the edge of the base. So this is not an easy call to make even for an umpire standing on top of the base. It's even harder for somebody like me who's catching, who's 90 feet away from the base, who is first seeing a ball coming at him with a, with a right-handed batter at him. So right away, my, my view of third base is blocked by the batter to some extent. And then when he hits the ball, it takes a second. And when I get up to look, because the ball, I, you know, I'm reacting to it getting hit, it's all bang, bang, bang. And the first thing I'm seeing is the ball hit. It's hard. By the time the ball crossed third base, I was still in the process of probably standing up. The batter was still in my line of vision. So all I saw was the ball fall into foul territory. But Pepitone was right there at third base in his lawn chair. And when I say foul ball, because don't forget, if that's a hit, their man from third scores and we're tied up. I call foul ball, which, of course, would be beneficial to our team because now that run wouldn't score. It wouldn't be a hit. So I call foul ball. Well, Joe Pepitone... He had a temper, and it was real. And part of this, I think, was was for for an act, but part of it wasn't because he was a competitor. These these baseball players, I don't care how old they are, they don't lose that competitive edge. And when I called foul ball, because I saw it hit on the left side of the line at third base, but by the time it happened so fast, maybe it flew over the base in fair territory, but I couldn't see that. All I saw was a ball fall foul, so I had to call it foul. Well, he jumps out of his lawn chair and comes running at me, screaming, swearing, and he gets right in my face. And, you know, he's taller than me, but he's in my face. He's hovering over me, and he's swearing and calling me every name. And how could you call that blank blank and ball foul and it blank and blank went over the blank and blank and base and fair punk oh my god it was a good minute and a half which seems like a you know it sounds short but it's there's someone yelling in your face for a minute and a half it feels like it's forever and at the same time while this is happening and i'm kind of trying to plead my case too I'm looking, he's, he's looking me right in the eye and he's, and, and, and part of him is, I think he's joking, but part of him was really not joking because I said he's a competitive guy. And it, it dawns on me as he's swearing all these expletives at me, I'm like, this guy was my idol. And I'm like, oh my God, Joe Pepitone, one of my childhood idols right now is swearing his head off at me. And it was, it, it was, it, it, I didn't know how to feel about this, you know, because it was kind of cool, but then he was kind of in my face, you know, saying what a jerk I was. And I'm like, but I love you, Joe. You're my favorite player. <laughs> and so finally he stopped and he gave me a pat on the shoulder because he was like, okay, you know, and we wound up winning the game. And But so the rest of the camp, whenever he saw me, He'd smile and, you know, you blew that effing call, you know, and, and so we had a fun time with it, and it was all in fun. But for a second there, for a good 15, 20 seconds, he was mad, and he was letting me have it. And I was I was just in shock. I was, I was 
I was laughing inside. I was hurt inside. I didn't know how to feel because here's my idol, this guy who I idolized. I wore, I grew my hair in the back for him when I was six or seven or eight years old. I, I, you know, I had his pin and I, I watched every game and I was Joe Pepitone, Joe Pepitone. Whenever we played baseball in the alley or something, I was Joe Pepitone. You know, I'm Joe Pepitone, even though he was a lefty, I was a righty, but I would, I would, I would mimic his batting style from the right side. But I'm Joe Pepitone. I'm Joe Pepitone. And here Joe Pepitone, my idol, was swearing his head off at me. (laughs) I will always remember that uh, because it was so crazy. But I'm and at the moment at the time I was scared as heck. But now I look back at it, you know, so many years ago, and I'm so glad that it happened because it was the perfect kind of memory to have of Joe Pepitone because that's exactly who he was, and that's exactly why I, I was, he was one of my idols because he was so flamboyant and so crazy and so funny, and I was the recipient of that entertainment and that temper and that rebellion right in my face. No other player that whole week had any kind of an encounter with one of the players like that, like I did. And not only was it, one of the players, but it was my idol, Joe Pepitone. So when I heard he passed away a few weeks ago, I was very sad because as as you get older, many of your idols will start to drop off. And uh, Joe Pepitone was certainly one of mine. And not only was he memorable uh, for me as a kid growing up, being one of my favorite baseball players and me emulating how he looked and how he played. But then to have that, you know, 30-some years later to get a chance to meet with him and hang out with him for a week and then have that encounter that will always be a a a, a fun memory uh, in my mind of that fantasy camp and of Joe Pepitone uh, was, just like I said at the beginning of the podcast, just like the... The Jeff Award was a uh, a nice little cherry on the top of the cake of this entire Virginia Wolf experience. So was my getting cussed out by Joe Pepitone, my idol, a a cherry on the Sunday of my Cubs fantasy camp experience uh, when I was forty years old. So Joe Pepitone. Uh, You made your mark, my friend, on baseball and certainly in my memory. And even though that encounter wasn't what you would call a genial or fun encounter with one of my idols, like when I met Bruce Springsteen or when I met Elton John or when I met Bobby Hull or when I met Ron Sano or I met Dick Butkus or I met all some of these other people, Jackie Gleason, which were all very nice and genial and, and, and bonding. My meeting with Joe Pepitone was a little different, but in many ways, even more memorable. Thanks for the memories. Number eight, Joe Pepitone. And so ends another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com. Or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast, we are there. And don't forget to tell your friends and tell your family, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion are much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed episode number 358. This is Jim Toronto. I ain't here on business. I'm only here for fun. You've been listening to Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic from the end of the web to your screen. We'll miss you, Peppy. <laughs>